Welcome to the podcast on Sources of the Reign of Robert I and the Anglo-Scottish Wars of Independence, a podcast produced by the Arts and Humanities Research Council-funded project, The Community of the Realm in Scotland, 1249-1424, History, Law and Charters in a Recreated Kingdom. The project team is made up of historians from the Universities of Edinburgh, Glasgow and King's College London, and is recorded in the King's online studio at King's College London. Each week, we take one of the important sources relating to the reign of Robert Bruce, King of Scots, from 1306 to 1329, and explain what it is, how it survives, and why it matters. I'm Dovit Broon, Professor of Scottish History at the University of Glasgow, and this week, Professor Steve Boardman from the University of Edinburgh will be taking us through Barber's Bruce. So, first of all, what is this source? Uh, that's a very good question, uh, uh, David. It's a, a complicated and, and complex source uh, to to discuss and to to try and get get a handle on. Uh, Barbara's Bruce uh, is uh, essentially a, a literary work, although it has um, uh, pronounced historical elements to it. It's, it's produced in the 1370s, looking back to the early decades of the 14th century and more or less giving us an account of the life, uh, achievements and exploits of Robert I, Robert the Bruce, but also the exploits uh, and and daring deeds of his principal lieutenants and a a wider cross-section of Scots aristocrats, Scots commoners, uh, indeed in some cases, from uh, the Wars of Independence era, uh, and then it rolls through, the narrative rolls through to talk about uh, the Douglas Crusade that takes place after after Robert I's death. Uh, famous crusade that takes Bruce's heart into south of Spain, into Granada, to uh, crusade against the Moors. Uh, so how does it survive? Uh, the work survives um, largely because uh, it's very popular. Uh, in in late medieval Scotland, the two extant late medieval manuscript versions of of Barbara's Bruce date to fourteen eighty seven and uh, fourteen eighty nine. Significantly, perhaps uh, bracketing at the end of James the reign at the Battle of of, of Sockyburn. But despite uh, these these first extant versions, surviving versions being from over a hundred years after Barbara's work is is compiled or, or finished in the 1370s, it's quite clear that a number of, of people between 1370 and 1480 knew of and had copies of Barber's text. Uh, so, for example, Andrew Winton, chronicler writing in the early 15th century, regularly uh, has asides uh, when he's talking about the Wars of Independence era to say to his readers, uh, if you want to check up on this, go and look at the start of Barber's book, book or, or at the end or in the middle of Barber's book for particular particular episodes. And Walter Bower, writing his Scottish Chronicon in the middle of the 15th century, likewise talks about Barber in very glowing terms as, as an author and as a preserver of the history of, of, of Robert I and the early decades of the 14th century. Uh, thank you very much. So... Just thinking now, in when it was originally written, um, I mean, what context was it written in, and who for, and why the 1370s? 
That's a, a extremely interesting question, and it's one that sort of has, has bedeviled the study of the text really for, for, for some time now. Uh, because despite the fact that it is a product of the 1370s, one of the principal ways in which Barbara's Bruce has been, been used by historians at any rate is as a mine for, for facts uh, uh, about uh, Robert I and episodes in Robert I's uh, career, really treating it as a, as a late reflective work from which you might be able to get useful material about Robert's lived, lived life. Literary scholars haven't really uh, used it in, in, in that way for very obvious reasons. They've, they've taken it as a work and talked about which genre it belongs to, the types of narrative structures and, and tropes it, it employs, and that, that sort of rather puts it into a different context of, of discussion. But for our purposes, one of the most interesting things is that the Barbara's Bruce is produced in the 1370s, in the reign of Robert I's grandson, first Stuart, King of Scotland, Robert II, named for his eld father, as Barbara and others make, make clear. So in that context, we can probably think of Barbara's Bruce in fulfilling two distinct functions. One, it's a celebration of Robert II's maternal lineage, his, his mother Marjorie, obviously daughter of, of Robert I. And it provides, if you like, a suitable commemoration of the grandfather, the hero king, whose shadow lies over much of, of Robert II's career. And, and Robert II also indulges in, in a, a lot of tomb rebuilding for uh, his maternal and paternal ancestors. So he is somebody who's interested in commemorating the past and also reflecting in, in the association uh, with Robert I. So, so there is that aspect, but probably more interestingly, if you actually look at the content of Barbara's Bruce, it's actually a, a, a sustained encouragement to the Scots in terms of, of struggles with the English realm or with the English kings uh, and an evocation of an earlier age of Scottish military ascendancy and Scottish triumphs in both small-scale and large-scale warfare. And that may well be needed in the 1370s because it, this looks to be a point where what had been a good relationship between the Scottish and English kings, David II and Edward III, is breaking down. Robert II and the people around him are perhaps more interested in war, um, but they're also dealing with a long legacy of Scottish military reverses since the time of, of Robert I uh, and James Douglas and Thomas uh, Randolph, Earl of Murray, all these great figures, as they see it from the early 14th century. There have been a, a whole sequence of massive battlefield catastrophes for, for the Scots. Uh, Haldon Hill, Dublin Moor just before that, Neville's Cross, and Edward III had also managed to thoroughly humiliate the Scottish Crown's continental backer, the King of France, at Crecy and, and Poitiers, 1346 and 1356. So in the 1370s, uh, there seems to be a slight despondency uh, around uh, the Scots nation in arms and understanding that they can't really compete uh, and that war with, with um, the southern realm is simply a bad idea, and particularly with a great king like Edward III. So in that context, 
Barbara's Bruce looking back to this this earlier age is you know maybe viewed as something of a of, a, of an attempt to reclaim those uh, those virtues to refashion Scottish chivalry to reinvigorate the Scottish nobility in, in, in the martial sphere and in fact Barbara makes that quite clear on a couple of occasions saying that he expects his readers to follow the exemplar uh, of their, their their glorious elders uh, their ancestors and, and so it's, it's it's both a combination perhaps of a, of a celebration a commemoration and also a, a stimulus to, to action and a, and a uh, manifesto which says we mustn't we must despair no longer that's marvelous um, and I mean it is a huge work and traditionally divided into 20 books so instead of trying to summarize it what aspects or features of it do you think are, might be particularly significant or you'd want to draw out well well following on on what we've just been discussing probably one of the the most important episodes covered in, in the work is the Battle of Bannockburn itself, uh, which is, is important both for what it represents to the audience in the 1370s, but obviously has been transferred on now to modern understanding of, of the significance of, of the battle, which is presented in, in a very animated uh, and energetic way by, by Barber, typical of somebody who's interested in glamorising warfare and uh, seeing chivalry in action in, in the 14th century. And, and so one of the reasons that, I suppose, Bannockburn looms so large in the popular modern imagination in, in Scotland, at any rate, is the, 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 the sheen, the, the, the sheer glamour that is attached to it through Barber's, Barber's very um, dynamic account. It's one of those few, few accounts of a, of a medieval battle where the narrative makes you feel the, the, the clash and clamour going on, on, on around you. So that, that's one thing. But I think that uh, moves into a, a wider point about Barber's Bruce. Uh, is it, it's, a, it's a discussion of chivalry uh, and the appropriate way to conduct warfare. Uh, and it therefore fits into a much wider 14th century movement, stimulated by the widespread warfare that comes in the wake of... of the Hundred Years' War, um, the main Anglo-French conflict. But across the continent, writers and uh, knights are, are turning to contemplate what, how should warfare be conducted, how should you treat prisoners, how should you distinguish yourself in combat, what are the guidelines that we're, we're working within. And to some extent, Barbara Bruce is part of, of that wider dis discussion. Uh, and throughout it, there is a, a running theme about the appropriate way for the Scots to conduct warfare. And uh, there's an emphasis on uh, the honour and the chivalric worth in winning, in being an effective king or, or warrior, and uh, an implicit rejection of some of the more high-minded, self-sacrificing ideas about, about chivalry. And, and in Barbara's Bruce... That dialogue, that conversation is carried on. So on the one hand, you might say the pragmatist wing, Robert I and James Douglas, and on the idealist wing, Thomas Randolph, Earl of Murray, and uh, Edward Bruce, uh, uh, the king's brother. And of course, the uh, ideas, uh, the, uh, 
opposition that Barber has, has set up there actually has come to influence the way that historians have judged these characters in, in subsequent works. And, you know, the hot-headed Edward Bruce. Where does that idea come from? It's all from Barber. The um, too chivalric uh, Thomas Randolph, where is that idea from? It's from Barber. So I think that's probably one of the the key themes that, that runs through, through through Barber's Bruce. Yes, thank you very much. And, uh, and just following up on that, just to ask about the role for the those who aren't the warrior class, which seems quite distinctive. Barbara's Bruce and a num- number of people have, um, people like Lewis Eb- Ebden and others have, have picked up on the fact that Barbara's work is quite unusual and although it's clearly aimed at an aristocratic audience, it, it name checks uh, various non-nobles who play a critical role in a whole variety of episodes through the text in terms of, of uh, the warfare being being conducted and has an interest in portraying Scottish forces as, as essentially uh, composed of yeomanry. Um, uh, th- th- there's a, there's a, a slightly subversive element uh, to, to Barber's, Barber's narrative. And sometimes he seems to be quite conscious of that. There's, there's a few episodes, one where a French knight who happens to be with, with um, uh, Robert I's forces sees the king plunging into the moat around the borough of Perth uh, up to his neck in icy water, and French knight observing that you know there's real kingship, there's real knighthood compared to the French French knighthood, who are more concerned with the pleasures of of the banqueting hall and wearing finery, and Barber seems to have picked up on this wider view of of the Scots from continental sources from continental viewers as slightly dishonourable as not really adhering to chivalric ideas, as, as being slightly out with the grandeur of, of uh, full courtly life. And Barbara almost flipping it over and, and saying that, well, this is, this is real chivalric virtue. It's, it's the values of the battlefield. It's the values of, of the knightly brotherhood. But it also seems to extend beyond that uh, to recognise that other elements in those Scottish forces, non-aristocratic elements, are important and are also significant in the, in the struggle. That this is not just a celebration, as say somebody like Jean Froissart, uh, his 14th century chronicles, uh, it's not just a celebration of noble courtly life and noble courtly values. That's, that's fascinating. So just to finish, why do you think Barbara's Bruce matters? Barbara's Bruce matters in three distinct ways. Uh, I, I I think uh, one we I don't think we can we can get away from it. It's still despite its its late date, thirteen seventies, it's still one of the main means by which historians tr- try and uh, approach or flesh out the life story, the biography of of Robert the First and his principal attendants like James Douglas and Thomas Randolph. Uh, it's still likely to be a significant routeway in for historical understanding, even if it has to be supplemented and very often overridden by, by contemporary documentary sources, contemporary to, to Robert I's own reign, because there are obviously uh, literary aspects which sometimes take Barber's narrative away from a straightforward narrative retelling, which is what 
previous historians have always wanted to treat it like and seen uh, variations as a sort of type of, of um, failing on Barbara's part. So there's the, the, that historical aspect of point of view. There's a literary one. Um, uh, Barbara's Bruce is uh, the earliest extant full-scale literary work in the early Scots and therefore stands as a, as a landmark in the development of Scots as a literary language. And as you'll know, um, just about every anthology of Scottish literature will kick off uh, with substantial extracts from Barbara's Bruce because it, that's, that's where it sits within that canon. It is very strange that the first substantial example of, of, of uh, this literary strand is so substantial <laughs> uh, and, and so, so complete. So it, it will remain, uh, it, it remains important for people who are interested as many people should be in the development of, of Scots literature in the medieval and early modern period. And then, of course, finally, it is still the main conduit by which, or the main lens by which, we look back on Robert and the Wars of Independence era. Many of our judgments, no matter how much we, we supplement them with, with reference to uh, contemporary uh, record sources, are formed or shaped by what Barbara's story tells us, the, the, the narrative structures um, sets up, the, the, the villainy uh, and the heroism. Uh, and, for example, The Outlaw King, the recent film, that is that period in, in Bruce's life is clearly something that's celebrated in Barbara's Bruce, but also other freestanding accounts. So we can, we can really view Barbara's Bruce as something that hoovers up all these discrete accounts, all these different elements, talking about Robert, talking about James Douglas, talking about Thomas Randolph, and produces a type of consolidated vision which has gone on to shape uh, the historical uh, viewpoints of, of understanding of the Wars of Independence Year of late medieval chroniclers, early, uh, early modern chroniclers, and through into, into the modern era from the 19th and 20th century onwards. Everybody, in a sense, is following Barbara's lead. Thank you very much indeed. So if you've liked this podcast, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Follow the project on Twitter, and the handle is at COTR2020. And visit our website online at www.cotr.ac.uk.